If you're looking to sell your private company's stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com equity. Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture-focused podcast. I'm TechCrunch reporter Kate Clark, and I'm joined by my co-host, free agent Alex Wilhelm. How's it going, Alex? Uh, I don't think journalists can be free agents. I think we can be unemployed. Freelancer. Free, no, How about that? not doing that either. I'm just doing, I'm moving. That's what I'm doing right now. So I'm, I'm employed by taking care of my own stuff, which is not great. Um, but we have some news about that, though. People have been asking us about equity and... People are concerned about the future of equity. Yes. Uh, well, we have good news. We have very good news, which is that nothing is changing. So if you Nothing have, is changing for now. Yeah. Well, no, not even looking into the future. Like things, things should persist roughly as they have been. So if you like the show as it is, great. If you were hoping that I was going to leave, tough, because I'm not. I can't do it alone, guys. I can't do it alone. I mean, the show, the show is coming up on its third birthday, which is... I'm legitimately impressed that we're here. And you just tweeted out um, a data point, Kate. What was that uh, metric you had? Yeah, so our downloads increased 100% this year. That's amazing. We don't no. share exact uh, numbers there, but, you know, they things are growing really fast and we're really happy with how this whole year has gone. We can give a range. It was in the seven figures. There you go. <laughs> Enjoy that. Um, but yeah, it, it's. I think I've been doing the show now for almost a year, maybe about a year now. Um, so... Well, you joined and then downloads doubled. So there yeah, you go. Yeah. I wasn't trying to say that. It sounded like I was. <laughs> I am responsible for all growth. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyways, welcome to the Thanksgiving edition of Equity. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone listening. It's Wednesday, so we hope you guys are all gearing up with your family and your food and your friends and your fun and your football. Go Eagles. And uh, we are, we, I don't know, I'm, I'm excited about not working a little bit more and uh, all that good stuff, but... There's a lot to get through. So wait, do do all teams play on Thanksgiving or just some teams? I know there are at least three football games on Thanksgiving. So if Go you Seahawks. That's the only team I support. Are they playing? Uh, the Seahawks, um, well, they beat the Eagles, if I recall correctly, which is ridiculous. <laughs> and the Seahawks beat the 49ers, which is the only team I think to beat them this season. Go Hawks. So, uh, all right. Yeah, let's go ahead. On and to things that I actually know about. <laughs> Uh, oh, this is fun. So we're starting off with the weekend fund and the second iteration of this. This is a venture capital fund put together by the infamous slash notorious slash very nice Ryan Hoover, uh, most famous for his work, I think, at Product Hunt, Yeah, which was a, I don't know, dig slash Reddit slash what's new kind of like hot place to find. Uh, Product discovery platform. That's how I described it in my story. But yeah, the, he's... Brian Hoover is the founder uh, and CEO of um, Product Hunt, which was acquired by AngelList in 2016 for 20 million. Um, you know, he stayed on; they operated independently. He stayed on in, in his role, but he also kind of shifted his focus at that around that time to venture capital with um, a three million dollar debut angel fund that he closed in 2017. Fast forward two more years, he's on to his second fund after investing in. Um, you know, a bunch of interesting companies like Girl Boss, which I think most people are familiar with. It's sort of like a LinkedIn for women. Sophia Amoroso. Yes, she did yes. um she was in fashion before. She had the company called Nasty Gal. Mm -hmm. Um there's a TV show about that, which is on Netflix. It's a good show. Actually, it's a really crappy show, but it's <laughs> <laughs> well, I was oh, glad you told me. I would have watched it because I read her book and no, I thought it was very I good. I read her book too. Um the show's the show was canceled after one season. Um if you're into like kind of crummy shows about young women like I tend to watch, it's it's enjoyable, but anyways, not, not critically acclaimed. 
The book though is worth reading. I felt yeah. I the book said she has an interesting story for sure. Yeah. Um, but anyways, that's one of his portfolio companies. TTYL is another one of his portfolio companies, which is like a, as far as I understand, it's a social media platform of sorts that's focused on audio. So kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, I, that, I mean that's cool actually. It's really cool and it, it's an interesting site. I was looking at it yesterday a little bit. Um, and Headspin, which is another one of his companies. This is a mobile application performance software company. Um pretty highly valued already. I think like 500, 600 million dollar valuation. So he's got, you know, a large portfolio of, of, of several companies that I recognize. And I'm mm-hmm. sure that you would too. Um, doing well enough that he's on to his second fund, which is 10 million and limited partners in the fund. Basically a ton of really famous VCs. Uh, Mark Andreessen, Chris Dixon, Jaina Messerschmidt, Ben Rubin. Chris Saka, Hunter Walk. I mean, the list goes on and on, as well as a bunch of entrepreneurs, founders. So it's kind of all the cool kids put money in this fund. And yeah. here's a question I have about this, because that is that is a hilarious number of LPs who all wrote $100,000, $200,000 checks. So essentially, not much money to them. Mark Andreessen wouldn't miss Tiny bit of money for them. And I think I read in, in Ryan Hoover's blog post that he'd written that there was like 100 LPs. Basically, yep. his might have been more. His, he said the reason he did this was that there would be a ton of advisors for his companies. Certainly could be the case. Could also be the case that he was only getting a little bit from each of them and he had to raise from a bunch of LPs to fill the fund. But more likely, because he has a good reputation, he is well known, as you said. More likely, he, he really did want sort of all these expertise kind of surrounding the fund able to help with various companies. I was looking at kind of the other perspective, though, kind of um, in reverse, which is these LPs are often people who are either looking for new opportunities to build things or new opportunities to invest. So in a sense, he's kind of doing a scout type effort for them. Like uh, scouts, if you don't know, are people associated with a large fund, say Sequoia, and they have access to some small amount of capital and they can go out and write these really early stage checks without getting the kind of the big corporate name involved. Um, and so if you get visibility into what Ryan's doing, he does have a good eye for what's hot, what's next and so forth. It's kind of, it, it strikes me as a very reasonable place to put money. Yeah, I think it's one of the big trends that we've noticed. And we've talked about it before. I don't remember why we talked about it, but there are these entrepreneurs. They're well connected. They're they're almost like pawns for these larger funds. They and I don't mean that in a bad way, but like they get funding from other VCs who work at like Sequoia or Lightspeed or Benchmark or whatever it might be. And they use them to get into hot deals. Oh, it's, it's we talked about it when we talked about Superhuman. Ah, because yes. the founder of Superhuman was potentially raising a fund. He was backed, or you know, he's really, really in with the Andreessen Horowitz guys. Uh, and see. I think it's sort of like maybe they're using him to get in on some of these early stage deals. You know, not that these companies don't want to work with Andreessen, but you know, I guess it's just sort of like getting more people out there. And, and Andreessen can't put a lot of time into a. check. And so if you need someone who can do that, you just cut off a chunk of the money and, you know, essentially federate it out. Um, I think Indeed.vc just announced a bunch of new scouts as well. Yeah, a ton. Ashley Ashley Mayer, uh, now Mm -hmm. Glossier, formerly of Box. And I saw, it made me on my Twitter feed feel really, really um, Silicon Valley based when like multiple people were like, I'm a scout now. And I'm like, ah, crap. At the same time. Yeah. I, I was just coming back from vacation or I was like maybe on my last day of vacation when I saw that news. But I didn't actually see the the news of what was happening, but I just kept seeing all these tweets that were like, I'm a scout. And I was like, "What? why is everyone all of a sudden a scout for NDVC? But that's because there was a big yeah. announcement. Also, when I was growing up, being a scout wasn't very cool. I mentioned we were in Boy Scouts. And now it's like the coolest thing in Silicon Valley. Uh, yeah, I mean, it terms sounds, have changed. it's pretty cool because like if you're, if you're a CEO of a company, like I, I met with this one really awesome CEO and she was a, she was a scout for Sequoia. And she was just saying, yeah, she's like, every so often I meet a really cool company and I basically just shoot them a note being like, hey, this is cool. You should invest. And then if they agree, they do. And then she gets a 
I don't know whether it's just a check right then or it's a cut of the company or whatever it is, but it's a pretty nice setup because it doesn't require really her to do any work. She's just she's just existing and going about her day. And she comes into contact with these companies because, of course, she does. You know, she's she's in that ecosystem. Yeah. So it's it's a pretty sweet deal. I it's think. like an early earthquake detection system for cool companies that might change the game. I think everyone's looking to get in early as, as early as possible on whatever's going to be the next big thing. And then they want to just foie gras with money, just push it in. The foie gras round. Um, but the, the whole idea of foie gras is that you force feed a goose and then it yeah. gets a fat liver. In this case, if you overfeed a startup, you can essentially get ahead of other rounds. Uh, last thing on this really quick, uh, we have seen a lot of funds get larger over time. Another example of that, this is a much larger fund. Uh, we've also seen uh, not every fund that starts off with a small amount of capital make it to a second iteration. So we presume Ryan was doing a little bit better than most. And uh, I think I would call this a nano fund, Kate, back to our discussion about, uh, about yeah. nomenclature. We talked about this before we taped because I was reading an article in Crunchbase News about um, small funds, essentially. And they, they differentiated between a sub $25 million fund and a sub $100 million fund. So a sub $25 million fund is a nano fund. So I had never heard this term, but I like it because it helps you be really specific about what, what it is you're covering. Yep. Sub $100 million fund, so probably between 25 and $100 million, that's a micro fund. So I am someone who typically just says micro fund referring to all of those. But like if you want to be really specific, you can differentiate between nano and micro. So maybe I'll try to do that from now on to be more clear. It, it's helpful. I used to make fun of the idea of pre-seed. Like isn't pre-seed just seed? But I've also realized it that helps. Yeah, it, yeah, it does help. So more striations, the better. Uh, let's move on to... A failure. Actually, we don't talk about too many of these on the show since kind of the Blue Apron days, really. But Omni is uh, is shutting down, to my understanding, and effectively selling off its engineering team to Coinbase, a kind of giant in the American crypto space. Always probably, I presume, hungry for engineering talent. The reason why this is pretty interesting is that Omni had raised $35 million. So this was a, a relatively well-backed yeah. company. This wasn't just you know, a YC company that kind of flamed out. That happens a lot. So no, what? it raised quite a bit. Yeah. Um, Omni, to my understanding, was a neat way to get stuff out of your house and into storage. And the company would then kind of catalog and tag things. And yep. then you had the ability to rent out certain items from your personal collection of stuff. And then you could also have it brought back to you. And Kate, as I, as I explained this, it seems... Uh, kind of too complicated to work. There's a lot of moving parts and I wasn't particularly familiar with this company until all this news of it shutting down. But now that I have learned a bit about it, I'm not surprised that it didn't work out. So, you know, you have companies like Clutter, which will store your stuff for you, which is great because, you know, millennials in particular, apparently moving around a lot, whatever it might be, they need to store their stuff. Literally me this morning with the van. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, Omni took it a step further than a company like Clutter by actually letting you or allowing them to then rent out your stuff so that you could make money while you were storing your stuff. So it's kind of like, it's yeah, it's a strange combination of a lot of things. Um, I don't know why they need they felt you know to take that extra step toward actually renting out your items as well. But I think somewhere along the way that just became too complicated for them to sustain. Yeah, and I think they had kind of shut down their operations earlier and tried to white label their software. And I just think they couldn't find something that kind of that was going to work out for them long term. We're going to see more of these over time as we get later and later into this kind of startup cycle. But I think anything that raises over twenty million and shuts down is probably worth a mention if we become aware of its if it's if it's kind of end of life is is rapid as opposed yeah. to a long slow decline. We should bring it up and talk about it. So. Omni raised $25 million as you know, part of that $35 million 
from cryptocurrency company Ripple in early 2018. And now they're selling, sorry, not selling. Now 10 of their engineers are going to Coinbase. And I, this is hopefully not a really stupid question, but what is the crypto connection here that I'm missing? Well, I didn't know that their capital had come from Ripple, which is XRP, which is one of the most yeah. valuable cryptocurrencies, if you didn't know that. So what is, are they built on the blockchain or something? What am I missing? Well, that would, then, then we can't make fun of them. I was trying to be very <laughs> sympathetic because they worked really hard at a hard idea and took a real shot at it. And, you know, good job. Entrepreneurship matters for the future health of our economy. But if it was a blockchain play, I must have missed that when I was prepping for the show today. My mistake. I'm not seeing blockchain in any of these articles. Yeah. And Chris is shaking his head. Why? Because I was confused there, why they were going to Coinbase. Yeah. Uh, how come whenever someone tell us, please, whenever blockchain comes in, I feel like you and I just kind of like sit yeah, back like, in our chairs. Like, ah, uh, oh, crap. Don't ask me about blockchain, please. It's a slow database, but you can't change it. It's great. Decentralized. Yes. There you go. Um, censorship proof. And in this case also didn't say the business model. Um, we have seen a lot of layoffs lately. We talked about this on the show, fair, we work, Uber, et cetera. Um, We'll also be tracking the shutdowns yeah. as we track the capital raises. That is true. Um, at my last job, we used to do an annual collection of, we had a big list of every single VC-backed startup that shut down. And we did this thing called Startup Graveyard. And looking back, it was kind of like dark and probably like too too mean. But I, since I did that at my last job, you know, I was always kind of like familiar with and keeping track, but I, I don't do that anymore. And I just, it feels to me like there's been actually way less companies shutting down. It's probably just because I'm not keeping a close eye like I used to. But I don't know. What do you do? You feel like 2019 there were fewer startup casualties. There's been so much money around. I don't think we've had this like yeah. like you know cold snap that then freezes everyone in place and then there's all these problems. I mean, you and I read the same story from the Wall Street Journal um, in the last 12, 24 hours that was discussing how this sentiment in the market has changed and everyone's really worried now in this post we work you know situation. But everyone that I talk to still seems pretty enthusiastic, and so I have yet to see the sort of sentiment shift and then changing investment patterns that would kill off a lot of companies mid-cycle. Yeah, as much as everyone still talks about the downturn, we're yet to really see symptoms of it yet. And I think because of that, people are still sort of throwing money around. But yep. maybe 2020, that will change. I mean, hopefully not. Obviously, we're not advocating for companies to shut down. I'm just thinking, you know, talking about Omni, that it feels like we've discussed a lot fewer of those, you know, recently than we may have. Yeah, but now that our, our antenna is up, I mean, I'm sure we'll now yeah. see, see more of them. But I think they've been drowned, they have been drowned out by the enormous, like, Company X raises $100 million round from, you know, some random investor, like, I don't know, name somebody. That's always going to grab my eye more than small company who I hadn't used in four years shut down. Right, so. certainly. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. All right, um, shall we move on? Yeah, do you want to talk about Cocoon? Yeah, so um, this week a company launched, um, finally. This was a company that we saw at YC Demo Day. Let's see, not the last batch, so not summer, spring 2019. The company's called Cocoon, and I couldn't talk about it because they were one of those companies that was off the record at Demo Day, which means that they do a presentation, but they give you a little piece of paper that says off the record, and you know you just can't talk about it at all, ever again, until they until they come out, which they did this week, and they tweeted that they are now officially available in the App Store. Um, do you want to describe the app? So, yeah. So, I, w I went ahead and played with this before, actually, over the last couple of days. It it reminded me a little bit of Path and a yep. little bit of kind of like, remember the circles in Google Plus? We could kind of like have people in little buckets. Yeah. So, I started a cocoon, um, and you can share images and kind of facets about your life, like how much battery life you have on your cell phone, and kind of all these things, location, I think, as well. And it's an idea that privacy and and kind of like 
personal intimacy with you and like a certain cohort of friends is something that's really, really important. I agree with that. Um, the app seemed honestly well-designed. It it's did put seem together, really well-designed, I agree. Yeah, by two ex-Facebook people, so they, they know what they're doing. Yeah. And uh, they've raised uh, $3 million from a venture capital firm called? Larer Hippo. There you go. Because I mispronounced that apparently in the pre-show, and I was mocked <laughs> At least, mercilessly. I, I think he mispronounced it. I might be mispronouncing it, but Alex said Larer Hippo. Did I say Hippo? It's like you say Yahoo, or what do you say? No, Yahoo. Yahoo. No, that's not how you say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, no, you, you normally say yahoo. I think. Yay! I don't. Right? I, don't I don't say yahoo. That's an exaggeration. <laughs> Anyways, they got three million dollars, <laughs> yes. and they came out this week. So and I'm positive about it. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I remember their pitch, and I actually, I remember that was a company where I was like, "Darn, I wish they weren't off the record," because I actually like think this is really cool. They had a really good pitch. They have. They're obviously really experienced. Um, it's if you've used Life 360, it's definitely similar, and I I use that with my family, so. I, you know, I was intrigued by the possibility of sort of maybe switching over. Um, Cocoon is much better designed. Um, and I think, as we talked about before the show, Life360 is something that a lot of teenagers are forced upon by their parents so they can get better, so their parents can GPS track them. And my mom still GPS tracks me, so I understand. Can, can, we, can we pause and just, what is like the, the short explanation of what Life360 is? My parents are 67 and text me, but that's kind of the extent of it, so... Um, it's an app that, I mean, you can track people on it. So there's a big map, which I like to use. You can see where all your family members are at any given time. Um, it also tells you things like what their battery charge is, which I find, I always find funny because occasionally like my younger brother will be like, Kate, you need to charge your phone. It's like, pipe down, go get your (laughs) own life. Stop. But I, I don't know honestly how many, what, I think there are many other features, but that's kind of how I use it. Essentially just a way to communicate with your family and keep track of them. But like I said, Cocoon is, is better designed. So I think those teenagers that are currently forced to use Life360 may take, be more interested in using Cocoon just because it looks cooler. And, and it does. Life360 Life looks like it, it was designed by helicopter parents. Oh. I don't know who designed it. I mean, the company, obviously, but I don't, I don't know who's <laughs> behind it specifically, but it's, um, it gives off sort of an uncool Parent down, vibe. kind of like forced use thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, are there a lot of apps out there for parents to kind of surveil their children? Yeah, I think so. Wow. Life 360, I, th- I think, is a common one. The thing is, though, you can share your location in iMessage. And that's how I, like, I have a few friends, like, and a couple siblings who I do that with. And that's the easiest. Like, I wish my mom understood that, but she doesn't. So yeah, she we have very different siblings. I'm just realizing this well. My <laughs> siblings, like, if I text my brother and I get a text back within a week, that's like, oh, he's alive. Great. Fantastic. Yeah, we're pretty communicative in my in my uh, yeah. family. Treasure that because I wish my family was more talkative at times and they're not. Um, anyways, enough talking about our families. Sorry for bringing that up. Uh, it is Thanksgiving week, to be fair. And I'm not seeing my family this week, so. Really? No, because I, I, I'm going home for Christmas. Uh, and I'm going to Germany next week for TechCrunch Berlin. So I can't just like hop over to... Why are you looking at me like that? I, I forgot TC Berlin was next week. Well, it's the following, but I believe in like next Thursday. Oh, okay. My gosh. That's so yeah, soon. There's a lot happening. And I just got back from TechCrunch Shenzhen. So I'm kind of like. Yeah, how was China? It was good. We were actually going to talk about it, but we didn't. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so it was cool. Dollars. Yeah. So I interviewed the CTO of Lime. She said, I think set between six and eight times in the interview that Lime would be profitable next year. So please, we need to hold them to that. Because I was like, I was like, Really? You really are. And she was like, we will be profitable. Okay. Profitable in what terms? Like adjusted EBITDA Legitimately profitable. Like gap net income. Yes. Wow. Yep. I mean, I want that to be true. She said it over and over again. So anyways, I 
would like to hold them to that. I think she said second half of next year. So they'll be, so not a full year result, an H220 result. H220, yes. And no, 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 full year next year. So she said that, uh, so Lime's, you remember, the, I think it was the information, they published a story about Lime's losses. We talked about it. Oh, yeah. So apparently Lime's losses were pretty bad, 1H last year, this year. Second half, she insinuated were, they did wonderfully. So she said next year, prof, full year profitability. So I think, um, I mean, I, I don't think that it will happen, but I'm just, that's what she said. So it would be a revolution in the, micro mobility space if one of these companies would. even turned an adjusted profit for a material period of time while growing if lime can pull off actual net income over a multi-quarter period well i think i'll have to eat my shoes i mean and more power to him for having it right and us being headline the, headline for the episode alex will eat his shoes no, if lime does not become profitable in 2020 uh i once bait i once bet jason limkin about eating a hat and then I think one of us lost the bet. And so we had a hat shaped cake made, but that was my way out of it. That's funny. Scooter, yeah. sca- sco- scooter cake. A scooter. Well, we'd have to actually make a scooter cake. Do we know a bakery that could so, actually make one? No, probably not worth. You should ask Megan. She'd probably know. She would. Um, so, okay. So yes, I talked to her about Lime and, um, it was interesting because she used to work at Pinterest. So her entire background is, is yes, in engineering, but software. And she's now in hardware and, she, and you know, she's kind of said like, it's been really interesting and she seemed really confident. Like she's, she's really ma- managed to transition from software to hardware pretty easily. But um, yeah, it was, it was great. And I talked to a bunch of VCs and um, met a whole bunch of cool people. It was a very successful, very well attended event. So I'm excited for Berlin, which should be awesome. So one last question about China and then I want to move on to Airbnb. But um, we have seen the Chinese venture community dramatically pull back in terms of how much money they invest at the late stage. And according to the numbers I saw before I, I left Crunchbase, it was actually slowing down, I believe, also in the kind of the middle and early stages. Did, did that get discussed at the event? Were people talking about this cliff that venture dollars in China had kind of run over and slowed down? No, I think there wasn't. How should I put this? I don't think people at the event felt that they could be completely. What's the word I'm looking for? Honest. Yeah. Upfront, clear, like expre- transparent. Yeah. I mean, opinionated, sharing, you know, kind of off the cuff, sort of. I, I don't think people felt they could be very, like, it seemed to me that people were really thinking about what they were saying and being very careful. Okay. So, I, I, when it came to things relating to China, being in China, uh, um, I think people were careful. So, is what I'm saying. Of so course, other like subjects equity. less, but what? I was joking that that's not like this show at all. Right. Yeah. yeah we aren't thinking through anything that we say. Just, <laughs> we just saying things. The first thing that pops into our head. Mostly just having fun. Um, so, yes. I'm, I'm not surprised to hear that, but I wouldn't have guessed that. But I'm not shocked now that you've told me. Yeah. I mean, it's always interesting going over there. And I think given, you know, I went last year as well. I think it was a bit more free flowing. This year felt a little more tense. Um, people were, you know, like I said, being a little bit more careful with what they said. And when it came to speaking about China in particular, I think... Of, you know, people avoided it. I asked, I mean, I asked, uh, you know, the CTO of Lime why Lime wasn't in China and there wasn't really a straightforward answer to it. It was more like, you know, one day maybe we'll be here. It's a huge market, super exciting. We got to get the mechanics right. And then maybe, you know, yeah, yeah, there you go. You can always kind of just <laughs> like, speak. yeah, you just, just kind of throw a lot of that at the problem. Yeah. Um, anyways, let's move on. Uh, two more things to get through today. The first of which is that Airbnb, a company that we expect to direct list I would say Q1. Oh, I was going to say Q2, but Q1 sounds great. I'll take a Q1 direct listing. I think they just need to get it done before there's more drama. 
as long as they don't kind of form a bit of the next drama, because the numbers out from the information, which has been honestly to their credit, really on the Airbnb story the yeah. last six, nine months, um, reported that they actually had a $100 million, I believe it's adjusted EBITDA loss in Q2 of this year, which comes after a sharper, um, I think it was $306 million adjusted EBITDA loss in Q1. So they had an incredibly unprofitable uh, kind of first half of the year. Keep in mind that adjusted EBITDA is a um, politely you know, massaged profit metric. It's not as strict as gap net income, which is why when Kate said that about Lime, I was so intrigued. So we can presume that they lost more money than that on a on gap basis. Uh, we don't know the cash flow side of that. So we only have one kind of one window into the company, but um, their growth was slowing. I think it was 34% in Q2 and 33% for the first half of the year. And they did revenue of 1.2 billion in Q2 itself. So what's the, I, I didn't read the story, but did they have any sense of what's um, driving these losses? Yeah, it's an, it's an incredible uh, growth in sales and marketing. Other okay. costs are going up as well, to be okay. clear, but that seems to be the driving kind of pulse. Well, so, you know, we, we, we already talked about this on the podcast, but there was the, there was a, that very good story in Vice about the person who, um, who, un, who accidentally uncovered a nationwide Airbnb scam. Yeah. So there's been a lot of things like that. There was also the very tragic shooting on Halloween or around Halloween in an Airbnb property. Um, so Airbnb is now doing a whole bunch to actually verify their listings, which is great and needed to happen and probably should have happened a while ago. Um, but these things will, will cost money because it requires employees to actually, you know, physically or, you know, examine thousands of photos of properties and whatever it may be. So that's going to be costly. So I'm curious going into next year, how their finances will look, or, you know, perhaps even closing up Q4, how they might be impacted. Well, just thinking this out loud, those costs that you're outlining would be effectively a cost of revenue to me. That wouldn't be a strict sales and marketing expense. So you can see possible gross margin erosion uh, at Airbnb, but we haven't seen the numbers. We don't know how the accounting works out. We We haven't seen what the SEC has approved. We're thinking if that is the case, Airbnb could see itself slip a little bit from the technology bucket into the technology enabled bucket that Omni, for example, was in. Now, Airbnb is doing fine. They're not in any trouble of being shut down, but it could impact their revenue multiple at the time they're direct listing, uh, which could make it more difficult to hit the numbers that they expect. But at the same time, growing by a third year over year when you're doing, you know, two and a half billion, whatever that is in H1 revenue, you're huge. You're doing great. So I can't, I can't really throw a lot of stones. No, but I don't think so. the losses aren't good news. Right. I mean, it's worth, this is what we do is we talk about things like this. So that's why we're talking about it. We're not throwing any stones. I mean, I think Airbnb is going to have a very successful exit. I think we both said they seem like a great company. They, um, you know, certainly the narrative here is much stronger and more uh, enticing than a lot of the other Silicon Valley unicorns that have either gone public or considered it or, you know, we work. <clears throat> well, I mean, we work being the, the obvious counterexample to everybody. Yeah. But I mean, the, for the last couple of years, the thing that we kept hearing was Airbnb is doing better than you think. And everyone thought it was doing pretty good that in terms of scale and profitability, because last year in Q2, it made money. Yeah. So, yeah, I wonder, though, when they when they finally reveal their S1 um, and, you know, of course, expose their finances if we'll be disappointed because now our, our expectations are really high because for so long people have been like, they're doing better than you think. They're doing better than you think. And well, we're, we're maybe thinking they're doing better than they are. We're getting the numbers. I mean, remember a back bit, when yeah. we got like the, the WeWork numbers for 2018 and they lost 1.9 billion on revenue of 1.8. Yeah, and, and we, we were all, all like, wait, out. like what? <laughs> is that supposed to be what's supposed like, to be? Is that number correct? Yeah, that was frightening. Yeah. Uh, and it turns out that was a bad number. 
Now, in this case, though, obviously, reasonable growth, reasonable losses, yeah. probably reasonable cash spent. The question is, what number do they want to hit? And if it's a really high number, will they reach it or will it be a disappointment there in pricing? I wish that Airbnb would drop their S1 in December because December is a really boring news month. And I was just thinking today, I was like, if Airbnb would drop their S1, that would give me something to do for like two weeks of December. As long as they drop it the second half of December, I feel. That'd be a blast. Uh, anyways, we have other Airbnb <laughs> news, which is that the uh, uh, Airbnb's COO is leaving the company. Belinda Johnson is stepping down as COO in March. Uh, I bring this up because I'm curious if that impacts the uh, direct listing timeline. Don't know. but So um, she's, she said that she wanted to spend more time with her family. Yeah, um, but that doesn't mean anything. No, it doesn't. I agree. I, I was, uh, why is she leaving right before the IPO? Or right after. Is my question. If you, if you drop an S1 in December, you can oh, DL in January. Oh, she's stepping down in March. Okay, okay. Yeah, so I, I didn't realize. All right. Your timing would put the IPO inside of her tenure, which would make some sense to me. Uh, but if, she, if the DL is in June, you know, that would be kind of strange. Like, why not stick around for the, the big event yeah. that you've been working so hard for? It reminds me of when the CTO, or was it COO? Or CPO, Julie. Julie of Stitch Fix. So she stepped down in like 2017, right before, right like exact same, like three months before they went public. And everybody was like, why would she leave? It's because she was building her own business. And then, and then oh. that, that actually just, she only, I wrote about it like three weeks ago. It only just came out as public. So two years go by the whole time she's building a company. It's called the yes, I think. Anyways, that's just an example. What does it do? It's, a, it's going to be a, a next generation, really AI shopping platform. Don't we already have like 20 of those? It's going to be like the real deal. And I, I'm not, I'm actually not kidding. She's like, she's a, just the top of her field. She's worked at like Sephora, Nordstrom. She like built so much of Stitch Fix. She's just like an, the expert in e-commerce, next generation retail. And she's working with this AI expert. I think it'll be interesting. Cool. I don't no, really know if it's, um, I think we probably talked about it anyways. The, the yes? Maybe we didn't. I don't think so. But, I, but I, it sounds, if, if I they hope can actually the name. It, if it's not, this segment's going to seem Julie really Julie Bornstein strange. is her name. Okay. Okay. Anyways. Maybe Belinda Johnson is, 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 you know, maybe it's something like that. Or maybe she's found a really awesome next opportunity. Maybe she does want to spend some time yeah. with her family. We, we don't really know. I mean. We have no idea. Family time is a good time. Um, let's wrap with something that we're working to understand. I think it's a fair way of saying that. So the New York Stock Exchange uh, filed paperwork with the SEC this morning, and they want to change the way that direct listings work, which is really interesting because direct listings is something we've talked about all, all year long, particularly in the last few months. So the proposed change would actually allow companies to raise money through a direct listing. So as we've said, direct listings are a way to go public, but you don't, you only sell existing shares. So shares held by employees or insiders, and you don't raise any new money. If you go at public via an initial public offering or an IPO, you, you issue new shares and therefore raise new money. So by off, by allowing companies who are choosing direct listings to actually raise new money, it's kind of like the best of both worlds, which is why we're a little bit confused as to how it actually is different from an IPO. Yeah. So I, we read through the SEC filing this morning and we began to frantically talk to our friends and sources who know this stuff better than us. I didn't get to complete confidence, but here's the way that I would kind of frame this. And we're going to talk about this, I'm sure, ad nauseum for the next while. So we yeah. will figure this out and we will explain to everyone in uh, more concrete terms. But- in between a direct listing and a traditional underwritten bank-priced IPO, there may be a middle ground that allows the company in public, sorry, company in question going public to have more control over how many shares they sell and at what price, which would undercut the argument that Bill Gurley et al. have been making you know, forever now about uh, mispricing IPOs and that sort of risk. So probably 
the NYSE doesn't want to lose all of its uh, offerings to the future long-term stock exchange, if that ever kind of comes into uh, the fore, as people expect that it will. So this, to me, seems like a bit of future-proofing of yeah. a key index against a trend inside a critical sector that are trying to buck the traditional ways that it has made money for so long. Yeah, so two things. One, I'm guessing the NASDAQ will follow suit with this. Um, two, so Bill Gurley um, has been, you know, the the guy chatting about direct listings all year long. He's a big fan, as are many other VCs, because um, there are a bunch of reasons why. One of them is because of market-driven price discovery. So the concept of like, taking that power away from bankers who are notoriously bad at pricing IPOs and probably for their own benefit because they often get these big paydays if they, you know, whatever it might be. So if you are, you know, if we go toward this route of like a direct listing where you can also raise money, but there's market different price discovery. So there's actually some, there's a lot more power in the hands of the companies to actually determine the price. Whereas like, you're not just letting some bankers be like, let's price it at $12 a share. And then it opens at $42 a share right? or it opens at $1 a share. And you're like, why the, why did you price it at $12 a share? So that's certainly one of the greatest upsides of this. Um, so I th- can't really see why, or what do you think? Why would a company not go public through a direct listing if they can also raise money? So I have a lot of thoughts about this. Uh, when we're not going to go through the politics, but you know, we want to let people go see their families and not just worry about the arcana of the SEC. But um, when you direct list, the argument that I've been told is that even if you need more money, a direct listing is fine because you should just raise a chunk of private capital and then go through a direct listing, which is kind of okay, but you're still doing a price discovery uh, you know, round right before you direct list, you're still being priced. Now, this only makes sense as an argument if you think you're going to get much better terms from the private investors than the public investors, which is fine, but it sets up an automatic to me imbalance between the expectations of the private investors and the kind of implied sentiment of the public markets. So to me, it still doesn't quite solve the issue. Uh, what would, would is, you know, being profitable, but you know, there are a lot of options at this point. So it's good for, it's good for entrepreneurs. It's good for VCs. I think the old traditional IPO is imperfect, but slightly over maligned. But I think right now there's so much money and people can afford to push back against kind of a um, outdated method of pricing. And we also recorded a special episode of equity um, covering the topic of direct listings with an expert on the subject. So that will be available next month. Um, So you guys should look forward to that excellent dive. Cool. Well, we should wrap up. Uh, it is a holiday week and uh, we should go forth and, and do other things but talk about finance. But we'll we'll be back um, at the regular time next week. Yes. Happy holidays, everybody. And uh, Equity will be back um, soon. Happy Thanksgiving. Bye. You can find us on Twitter at Alex and at Kate Clark Tweets, or you can email us at equitypod at techcrunch.com. And we are now on YouTube. Watch the full episode on the TechCrunch YouTube page. And if you really want to support the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes. And you can also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and all the other places where you get podcasts. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet. And we will see you all right here next week.